So uh, we're getting to the end of Mark. We just have a few more weeks. And tonight and, and, and next week, we get to look at the last 24 hours in the life of Jesus here on earth. And we celebrate, if you're new here, we celebrate Jesus every week. The center of our worship for us isn't the beginning in the songs, although that's great. And it's not the teaching time, although I hope it's useful to you. That would be nice. And it's not the back end singing. For us, the center of it is when we pause and we go to a piece of bread and a cup and we remember Jesus. We remember his life. We remember his teachings. But specifically, we remember that he died for us and that he rose again. And so the center of our worship is that point where we remember Jesus. And tonight we're going to begin to see why Jesus died. It's a, it's a simple question, but it's an important one. Why did Jesus die anyway? There's the personal dimension, like, well, Jesus died to rescue us, right? He came to bring people who are far from God and bring them close to God. He came to redeem the world. That's the big picture. He came to set the wrong right. Why did Jesus die? But tonight, thankfully, uh, the gospel writers wrote down why he died on a practical level. Jesus was arrested last week. We saw that. That's where we ended. And then Jesus, we're going to see tonight, next week is put on trial, and Jesus is murdered. He's crucified. But tonight we want to think about why. Why did Jesus die? So we pick it up in verse 53. It says, they took Jesus after his arrest. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law came together. Uh, pause. The chief priests, elders, teachers of the law make up the group. We've talked about them a bunch called the Sanhedrin. The 70 official leaders. Rome occupies all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, but they allow occupied people to have limited control. So because most of the people living in the land are Jewish, they allow these certain people, 70 people, to oversee mostly religious matters. So if you've got a question about the Bible, question about worship, you don't go to Rome, you go to these guys. These are the people that Jesus spoke against while Jesus was teaching at the temple. These are the people who have the most to lose if Jesus continues to grow in popularity. So they're totally against Jesus. And they bring him to them and they come together. Verse 54 says, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So it's late spring, it's late at night, and you're arrested. If you've watched any of the cop shows or anything, I don't know if you're into that, they arrest someone, they throw him in the back of the police car or whatever, and they drive him to the police chief's house, right? And then they go to his house and they put him on trial. Doesn't that sound weird? I mean, maybe, you know, they, like you take someone and you arrest them and you bring them to like an official court, but that's not what happens here, is it? Next week, we're going to look at what happens when he goes before the Roman officials. But tonight, Jesus is arrested. And I want us to see that Jesus is on an unofficial trial here. Uh, in Jewish law and the right way of doing things, they would take Jesus and in the daytime, bring him to a room off of the temple. And that's where you brought your cases and, and issues of Bible, issues of breaking the law. They're done in the daytime and they're done at the temple. But where do they find Jesus? They arrest him. They bring him in the back door of the high priest's house. And so what's going on is a mockery from the beginning. Again, that may be new to us, but if, if you're reading this at the time of Jesus, that would like catch your attention. It says, verse 55, the chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin, that official group, were looking for evidence against Jesus. So 
they can put him to death, but they didn't find any. They're not looking to see if Jesus has really done anything wrong, are they? They're looking for evidence to put him what? To death. So this is like a pre-trial, unofficial hearing at night. The people have the most to lose. They arrest Jesus at night with the religious guards and clubs and knives. And they bring him. And they, what they want to do is get Rome to do the dirty work. Uh, if you're going to have someone condemned to death, most scholars agree that, that the Jewish leaders probably did not have the right to crucify someone. But that's a capital punishment that needed Roman authority. So what they're doing is they need to get Jesus in the chief priest's house, which would have been big and everyone official would have been there. And they want to drum up charges. But before they take him to court the next day, they're going to bring him to Rome. You need to have evidence because Roman law requires evidence. Jewish law requires evidence. But what's the evidence that they could find against Jesus? Mark tells us they can't find any. Verse 56, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Bummer, huh? They got a couple of people, hey, you say Jesus did that. Then the next guy gets up and they grill him and they can't get like the details to match. And so what, what do you do? Well, verse 57, some stood up and gave false testimony against him. So if people can't get it right, just make up stuff. And then we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. So some stand up and they accuse Jesus of saying that the building called the temple is just a human building. People saw the temple as more than a human building made with human hands, but rather the place where God, the creator, came down, his glory, the Shekinah or Shekinah, depending on how you want to pronounce it, comes God's weight, God's presence comes in the sacred space. It's holy space. So they want to get, and they falsely accuse Jesus. Jesus says, this is just some human building and he's going to destroy it and make another one. And, and Jesus did talk about, Mark doesn't give us the information, but other, other gospels tell us that Jesus did say, if you destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. But that he was speaking about his body. He, Jesus used the temple as a metaphor for God's holy sacred space. And what Jesus is saying is, I am God's presence. I am God's space. God has come. So you can destroy me where God dwells with men. If Jesus is here, God is among us. And if you destroy me, I will, I will be raised again in three days. Jesus was not talking down against the building, but they're trying to get, it would be like today, if you were living in Italy, I don't know if you've been there. My wife and I visited Rome years ago. In Italy, like the Vatican is a really big deal. Like you may think Vatican, how many of you have been to the Vatican in Rome? Okay, a few of you. It's a big deal. It's its own like geographic area. It has its own courts. It has its own law. It's its own like country, its own entity. It'd be like trying to get Jesus to quote charges like he's going to destroy the Vatican or, or in a, he's going to destroy the most important religious space. They can't get the charges to stick, so they make up stuff against Jesus. But um, they, they can't get it to work. But Jesus remained, verse 61, but Jesus remained, uh, oh, I'm sorry, let me go back, verse 59. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. So they, they, they throw these charges against Jesus, but they can't get anything to work out. The high priest stood up before Jesus, verse 60, and asked him, are you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing 
against you. Verse 61. But Jesus remained silent and gave him no answer. So we see at this like little mock trial where they're trying to catch Jesus so they could bring real evidence. Uh, people bring charges, but they don't agree. They make a false claim that Jesus has made light of the temple, but they can't get their people to agree. And then the high priest is just like looking to, to grab something out of Jesus. And he wants to get Jesus to speak. And Jesus remains silent. Isn't that really interesting and so super helpful? Like in today's day and age, anyone can say anything about anyone. Would you agree? I mean, just go on social media. People can make a claim. People can make, people can talk down your team as if like, I can't believe the Blazers are, blah, blah. And then people rant back and forth and I just laugh. And people are throwing things about a sports team like you're employed by the sports team or making any money off of it. But you know, like people get really personal. Anyone could say anything about anyone in today's culture. How does Jesus respond? Super helpful. He doesn't say a thing. Jesus doesn't speak. Where people are talking smack, they're talking trash, they're talking false information. Jesus doesn't dignify any of it. And isn't that a helpful thing? When people are lobbing things at you, you only throw, throw fuel to the fire. If it's false, if it's wrong, and if it's inaccurate, you do not have to make a claim against it. You don't have to jump on it. You can follow in the pattern of Jesus who doesn't even... He doesn't even qualify it as worth talking about. He remains silent. Now, Jesus knows the truth. He knows their hearts. He knows what's right, but he chooses to remain silent. What we're going to see tonight is Jesus holds back until they have something truthful to say. So far, no one can get anything to stick on Jesus. But uh, end of verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him. Now, now he gets specific. Are you the... Messiah, the son of the blessed one. I am, said Jesus. So Jesus is on trial. But before we see what, what the actual charge is going to be against Jesus, I want us to look back and realize that there are two trials going on. So here we have Jesus, people throwing lobs at him. Jesus remains silent. High priest says, are you the Messiah? He says, I am but before we look at what, what, what happens to Jesus in response to the truth, just jump back for a, a minute, back to verse 54. 53 said they took Jesus to the high priest and bring him together. Verse 54 says, Peter followed him at a distance right in the courtyard of the high priest. What we're about to see is there's two trials going on. This is actually a scene with two trials. And Mark has done this all the time. Mark takes one scene and another scene that doesn't have to do with it but he puts them together on purpose. And when you see both of them together, you get the main point. It's called a, a, a Markin sandwich. He crams these things together. And if you pull them apart, you may not get it all. Put them together and you'll understand what Jesus is getting at and the point of these encounters. And this is another one of those. Jesus is being asked questions and he remains silent. What we're going to see is Jesus is on trial, but Peter is on trial as well. So Mark starts with both of the guys are on trial. We're going to see Jesus. In a minute, we're going to see Peter. And then at the tail end, we're going to realize the reason Mark is writing is not just to give us biographical information on the death of Jesus. is because you're on trial. So you may not see yourself in the scene yet, and you're not in a court, and it's not late at night, and the Sanhedrin isn't out to get you. Bloggers aren't out to get you. No one's out to get you. Calm down. Like, you know, but, but, but there actually is a trial. You're in it. And you're potentially in danger. And so you need to know how Jesus responds 
in contrast to how Peter responds. All right, let's just jump back into the story. Verse 62, I am, said Jesus. So they asked him, are you the Messiah, son of the blessed? Uh, NIV adds the word one to give the fact that it's a person, but it's simply son of the blessed. What's the son of the blessed? In the first century, the name of God was so revered that you barely wrote it, you avoided it. So if you want to talk about God, you use names that apply towards God. So are you Messiah, son of, they should say God, but out of reverence, they say son of the blessed one or blessed one, creator, God. Are you Messiah, son of God? And now, because that is true, Jesus lays hold of that claim. Throwing accusations, Jesus is silent. When the truth comes up, Jesus stands up for the truth. Back in Mark 8, when, when Jesus asked all his disciples, who do people say that I am? Some said, you're John the Baptist. Others say, you're Elijah. Remember what Peter said back in Mark 8? You are what? The Messiah. Jesus says, yes, you are right, uh, Simon. So when Jesus hears the truth, he lays claim to the truth. So back in Mark 8, Peter said, you're Messiah. The exact same Greek phrase comes up. It sounds like a question. The high priest asked, are you the Messiah, son of blessed? But if you read it in its original, in Greek, it's not posed as a question. It's posed more as a statement of fact. And then you put a question mark just to clarify it for us in English. Peter says in Mark 8, you're Messiah. The high priest claims, you are Messiah, son of blessed. Kind of like, right? So Mark is tying those two, two together. Jesus says to Peter, you're right. You, you've heard the truth. Now the high priest out of his mouth, you're right, you're the truth. And so this is going to get Jesus in trouble. Now, what's the big deal? If he claims to be Messiah, who cares? Like, why put the guy on trial for that? Uh, that he wouldn't be put on trial because he claimed to be God's messenger. In this time, there was an expectation that God was going to send a deliverer, like Moses, who delivered God's people out of Egypt, like David, who delivers God's people out of the enemies, the Philistines. And God always raises up people who represent him and rescue the people. So there's an expectation at the time of Jesus that God's going to send Messiah. And there's all sorts of texts in the Old Testament that kind of throw little hints at what that's going to look like. So for Jesus to say, I'm Messiah, that's not like worth throwing him on trial for because in their time period, we think of Messiah as like, a divine son of God, Jesus come. In their mindset, it was a man. They weren't looking for like God to come directly. That's why Jesus is a surprise to people. He's a surprise even to the Jewish people because they're not expecting God himself to come in person. They're just expecting a human deliverer that God will use. So to say that Jesus is Messiah is not gonna get him killed. It's what he says next. And it's kind of the heart of, of the issue, saying, why did Jesus die? Well, this is why he died. Verse 62, I am, said Jesus, and then he qualifies what Messiah is going to do. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, reference to God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And at this point, all of you, I see it in your eyes, you're totally shocked and appalled. Like, what? Jesus says he's the Son of Man? This, I can't believe he'd say that. And when you look at it at first, you're like, okay, what's the point? <laughs> you know, here, what's, what's the big deal? Uh, what Jesus is pulling together is two references of Scripture that 
if you're the, remember, it's the high priest, teachers of the law. These are the top of the top. Memorize the Bible. These are the ones who instruct you in your, in your um, Jewish training. They know that the Bible is referring a couple of texts. The first one's in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Throwing it up on the screen. Write down the reference, because if you read the whole section, it starts to make sense. Jesus says, and you will see the Son of Man, what? The Son of Man coming from, um, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Uh, in the reference to Daniel, it's, this is what the Son of Man will be. It says, he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. This is about the Son of Man. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what, are you Messiah? Are you sent from God? Yes, I am. Okay. Most people don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but we'll take that one. And you guys need to know, now Jesus speaks up for the truth. You guys need to know your version of Messiah is too small. Messiah isn't just some human being like David. That's why earlier in the text when they called Jesus the son of David, Jesus jumps on that and says, no, no, it's more than that. I'm not just a descendant of David. I'm not just like a good guy, son of a good king. I am the son of man. When the son of man comes, God's person comes, he's going to come with all authority. His dominion and his rule is never going to end. He's going to have God's very power and so Jesus says, yes, I am Messiah and I am coming to judge. I'm coming to judge you, he says to the group. And this is what makes them mad. The other reference is Psalm 110.1. One. Psalm 110 is one of those Psalms that speak of the Messiah. Certain Psalms, not all of them, certain Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and a few others really speak these hints about what's going to happen when Messiah comes. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you. Sit at my right hand. That phrase, sit at my right hand, means you have all the authority. In, in our terminology, the, there's the president and the vice president, so to speak, sits at his right hand. President's not available. Vice president has all the authority authorized to do whatever the president wants to do. Now look at it on a huge scale. Who can speak for God? Who can be like God's representative? Who can, when they speak, they speak as if God the Creator is speaking. Jesus says, I am coming from God's right hand. I'm coming with all authority. Daniel 7 is speaking about me. Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You have authority until I take care of all of your enemies. And Jesus says, the son of man, myself, he's saying, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one, coming on the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven are clouds. When they believed God came into the presence in the tabernacle and the temple, it was like a cloud. God's presence would come. It was this Shekinah, this, this glory. They were trying to put words to it. What does God's presence look like? They would say, it's like a cloud that comes and rests. And Jesus says, I am coming with God's authority as if God's presence were here and I'm coming to judge you. Now at this point, you know, for us, it takes a little bit of time and thought to get it. You know they got it. Look at verse 63. The high priest, look at his response. He tore his clothes 
It's a sign of, I can't believe I heard that. I can't. It would be like us saying, oh, I can't believe they say that. You close your ears after you heard it. You know, like, oh, no, don't say that. He tears his clothes as a sign of, no way. I don't accept that. And now the high priest says, why do we need any more witnesses? I got the evidence I need. He asked, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. So what, what does it mean for, for Jesus to be speaking blasphemy? Blasphemy is the audacity to ascribe God's honor to oneself or to put oneself on the same plane, equal with God. To speak blasphemy. And this was, for the Jewish people, punishable and worthy of death. If you claim, now it's one thing to say, I work for God, or I kind of know God, or God's my BFF, or whatever you want to say. Like, if to say that I know, to say that I stand with God, have equal authority with God, represent God, God's characteristics. God comes in the cloud at temple. Jesus is saying, I come on the cloud. At this point, they're saying, this guy has gone haywire. We've got our charge. He is claiming to be a God. And remember, they're living under Roman authority. And so they're going to try to grab him on this one. This man claims to be a God. Caesar claims to be a God. And now this man, Jesus, is claiming to be some leader, some guy who's equal with God. They've got their charge. They've got their evidence. They can take Jesus to be arrested. Now, unfortunately, they do something that I think is just in human nature. Look at verse 65. And some of them, it's one thing to get a charge and accuse someone of something. They have courts of law. We have courts of law. But look at their heart. You want to see their heart? It's 65. They began to spit on him. When is it appropriate to spit on someone? I mean, I think of how, how vile. Like, when is it, if someone's done something to you, all right, take me to court, bring me before your friends. They spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with fists, and said, prophesy. You're God, right? You can speak truth. Let's close your eyes and tell me who's hitting you. And the guards, the religious guards, they took him and they beat him. So what, what's really going on on the inside comes out. So Jesus is on trial unofficially here. They're looking to see what's the evidence. The evidence is Jesus is now. Some people say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. You got to read the text here in Mark. This is the clearest passage where Jesus claims to have the same exact authority of God. Yes, Jesus did claim to be God because when they called him Messiah, he says, no, I'm not just human Messiah. I am son of man, authority of the creator, and I come to rule and I'm the judge. And what makes them mad is Jesus is saying, I'm going to come and judge you. And they've got Jesus on trial and Jesus is saying, wait, boys, I'm going to put you on trial. And we need to remember that Jesus is the judge. But how does the judge work in this setting? Look at what the judge does. Jesus has all authority. He can call angels to wipe these boys out in a moment. What does Jesus do? When they speak lies, he remains silent. As a just judge, he doesn't even get into the riffraff. He doesn't get into the hearsay. But when truth is spoken, like a just judge, Jesus stands for what is true. I am who you say I am, and I am more. And as a righteous judge, they spit on him, they punch him, they beat him, they mutilate him, 
And does Jesus respond and lash out? No. Jesus has all the truth on his side, but tonight I want us to see how, how beautiful Jesus is under pressure. Think of yourself, people, you just saying what you believe to be true, spitting on you, beating you, maligning you, mocking you. And my reaction is to take you out. And our reaction is to get our rights. Did Jesus have the right to be set free? Absolutely. But he doesn't take those rights. He's not weak. He's the righteous judge who waits for the right time to give the judgment. So Jesus does the right thing on a trial. Now, there's a second trial. Remember we said back in verse 54 that Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard. So now let's look at Peter on trial because Mark puts them together. Verse 66 says, while, uh, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. So Peter, Jesus' most outspoken advocate. Uh, the gospel writers hint that John is the one that Jesus loved. But when you look at the life of Peter and Peter is out there when Peter or Jesus steps on the water, Peter's the one who comes out on the water. Peter's the one full of faith. So let's say that, that Peter's probably the closest to Jesus in terms of his willingness to step out on God's behalf. So Peter is below in the courtyard. Who is putting Peter on trial? A servant girl. <laughs> like, this is the contrast we're supposed to see. Jesus is the holy one, high priest, the Sanhedrin, the top of the top, the people who have authority. Peter's on trial with like one of the little ladies that washes the dishes for the high priest. So you think that Peter would do well. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. Hey, you also were with that Nazarene, derogatory term, kind of a downplay, Nazareth was no man's land. You're with that hick, Jesus, she said. But Peter denied it. So Jesus spoke the truth when people spoke the truth about him. She speaks the truth about Peter. What does Peter do? He lies. He denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. No, speak it English here. Like, like I, don't, I don't get it. He said, and he, he went out into the entryway. So, so Jesus stands tall. They spit on him. They hit him. Prophesy. They beat him. He doesn't flinch. Peter's got a, a servant girl, no authority at all. The guy's on the inside. So he's, look, I want you to notice the contrast here. Jesus on the inside in kind of a real trial, real authority. He stands tall. Peter's out in the courtyard by a fire. A servant girl comes to him and says, aren't you with Jesus? This would be no big deal. Like, yes, I am. But please, I want to listen in. Brad says, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he runs away. He avoids being asked again. But the problem is they continue to follow him. So verse uh, 68, he denied it. I don't understand what you're talking about. And he went out of the entryway, 69. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, now she brings in a crowd. This fellow is one of them. And he denied it. So, G so, so Peter's given a second chance to own up for knowing Jesus, and he says, now, after a little while, those standing near. So, so the servant girl influences the crowd. Those standing near said to Peter, hey, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. He had a particular accent from Galilee. And, and like we could tell, someone from, from the East Coast, West Coast, the South, Galilee had its own unique accent. We know you, you're from Galilee. He began to call down curses, not cursing them. 
he's like, kind of like, I swear on my mother's grave, or, you know, like that, that, those flippant things that we say. So he's calling down curses, like, if I'm not telling the truth, may I be damned? And he swore them, I don't know this man. Not even, you can't even say Jesus. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately, verse 72, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Peter, before the rooster crows two times, you'll deny me three times. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. So Jesus, all throughout this, Jesus is the truth teller. You're the Messiah? Yes, I am. And the Son of Man will come in the clouds from the right hand of God. Jesus tells the truth about Peter. Peter, you're going to deny me. You say you're not, but you're going to deny me. And in this, we see the contrast. So Jesus on the inside, Peter on the outside. Jesus on trial with real authority. Peter on the outside with a woman coming against him. Uh, Jesus remains silent when, when they're talking smack, but Peter keeps talking again and again. I don't know him. I don't know him. Jesus stands tall. Peter walks away, and we're supposed to see that in contrast, there's a right response, and there is a wrong response. And really, the reason that he's writing in the first place is that when Mark writes his gospel, the church is on trial. So we want to think about this. With this combination of stories, the reason Mark includes the details is because in the early days, uh, Jesus had died and risen, but many did not know actually what happened. So some of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they give us the details so that we would have confidence. How did Jesus react when people wanted to kill him? We don't have to guess. We know Jesus stands tall. Jesus does the right thing. And at the same time, Peter is the one who influences Mark's writing. We think that Peter is the one who dictates most of the stories we know in Mark, that most of, Mark, of what Mark got, he gets from Peter. Interesting, Peter includes himself in the trial of Jesus. You see, Peter, even though he's a leader in the church and he's an apostle, Peter, in the moment where he could stand up, he failed. And the reason I think Mark includes Peter and Peter includes himself is that at that time, it's about 20 to 30 years after Jesus has risen, and the church in Rome, which we think he's writing to, is being severely persecuted for their faith. So Christians are being literally threatened and killed, having their property taken away from them. And what do you do when you face the pressure test? What do you do when you face the trial? What do you do when you face hardship? What do you do when it's you standing up with truth that's confronting you and people that are maligning you? How do you respond? And what we do is we, we get two scenes put together. We get Jesus who does what is right and we get Peter, his closest follower, who fails his most important test. And so we're, we're given these examples so that when we're faced with the trial, we know that we can respond in the way of Jesus or we can identify more with Peter. I don't know about you, but I identify more with Peter than Jesus any day. And so I want us to see as we think about and reflect about the trial that we're on, because it may not feel like it, but if you choose to follow Jesus, that is going to be in confrontation and in a buck against other ideas, other belief systems, other worldviews. Uh, wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play, wherever you go to school, all day long and all throughout your following of Jesus, you are going to be put in situations 
where our faith is going to be tested. And we're going to either stand up when the truth comes out that we are followers of Jesus and that means something. What will we do when we're put up to the test? When your friends laugh at the fact that you don't do X, Y, Z because you're following a Jesus or you do these things because you say you follow Jesus and their worldview confronts with your worldview, what are you going to do? Are you going to be like Peter who shrinks back and says, wow, that, that man, I, I don't, uh, nah. Yeah, I go to church from time to time, but you know, I'm not one of those crazy people, Christians. What do we do in the test? Three things I want us to see tonight. The first thing is that Jesus stands alone. Jesus stands alone. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus uniquely does what's right, and he literally stands alone. What I think we need to remember is tonight we should get a higher view of Jesus. How do I know someone's maturing in their faith. How do I know when I'm really growing in my faith? Here is the litmus test. And those of you who've been around for a while following Jesus would agree. When I have a greater view and I'm more enamored by Jesus and I'm less enamored by myself, it's a telltale sign I'm on the path to growth. When I realize that Jesus is more amazing, when I think like, yeah, Jesus, and I have a low view, I probably don't really get what's going on. What Jesus does is unheard of in the face. He can speak all truth and he has all power and he has access to all that's right and everything on his side and he does not lash out. And he does not use the God card, which he could at any moment. And he allows himself to be beaten because he knows as Messiah and as son of man, it is his role to die for the sins of the world. And it's his privilege to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Mark's line, which is so telling, is Jesus came, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. It's the hinge on the whole book. And right in the middle of Mark, you see it in Mark chapter 8, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to, uh, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now Jesus is about to give his life as the ransom. And he stands the test. So we should uniquely give Jesus the honor and the reverence. The reason we're not here to worship any man or institution or church but Jesus, the person, is because he's earned that spot. Jesus is God, but he is a man, and he stands the test, and he always does what's true. And Jesus' words are right. He is at the right hand of God the Father, and he's the judge. So we honor and reverence Jesus above all things. And Jesus stands alone when it comes to the claim of setting people free. And we need to think about this. In light of what we're seeing about how Jesus responds under the trial, Jesus is not just one in the, a long line of good moral teachers. He's just not one religious figure. He's not just one religious character. He's not just one of many opportunities and ways to know the divine. Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior. He stands alone. He's unique. And we must never forget that. Living in a culture that believes any way to God, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, is equally valid. Most of us would say violence in the name of God makes no sense. But we live in a culture, we live in an age, we live in the Northwest where any path, any eclectic mix of spiritual ideas is, is good and right. And who are you to tell me what to believe in? Who are you to say that this one person, this guy from Nazareth in the Middle East, this poor man, Jesus, he's the one person that's going to set and save, uh, uh, set us free and save us? He's the only way to God? 
And I would dare say, as we look at the gospel of Mark and we see Jesus on trial, the answer is an absolute yes. We must never forget that Jesus stands alone. He's unique. Now, we don't rub it in people's face and we don't beat it over their head, but we don't sit back and let other people say something that's untrue. Any way to God will be seen as right in the eyes of God. And that is absolutely untrue. Later on in the book of Acts, we'll see the gospel writers and the apostles affirm there's only one name under heaven by which all men and women must be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. Jesus is it. And so the Son of Man who's beaten and destroyed is also the Savior of the world. Let's never forget the majesty and beauty of Jesus. He's alone. But the second thing I want us to see tonight is like, like Peter, we are tempted to deny Jesus. So it's not about just Jesus on trial who stands the test. It's also about us. And we, more often than we'd like to admit, are confronted and put in situations where we can either speak up and stand up for what is right. When I say stand up, I don't mean picket. I don't mean talk against. But I mean affirm what we believe. How many opportunities do we get in the marketplace where we work, where we serve, where we hang out, where we could bring up the name of Jesus? When someone says they're struggling and we could say, man, would it be okay if I prayed for you? Which sounds real goofy. But if we really believe that Jesus is the savior of the world and Jesus loves all people, what if we were the kind of people that when presented with the opportunity to say, yes, we know this Jesus, that we wouldn't shrink back like Peter? Now, I, I'm more like Peter than Jesus, but I think these trials challenge me and remind me. Peter had his moment of weakness, but remember, the third thing I want us to see is that our response and your response to Jesus in a time of failure, it matters. Look at the last line, and this is where we want to kind of land the plane, so to speak, for my friends who are all the pilots on the left-hand side of the room. It's a metaphor I shouldn't use. It's pretty cheesy. Sorry, guys. But anyway, most everyone on that side is studying to be a pilot or is a pilot. So uh, the, last, the last line that we see uh, in, in, in this text, speaking about Peter, verse 72, and Peter broke down and wept. And this is beautiful. Jesus stands up. His closest, greatest advocate, Peter, fails. But in this failure, when he's exposed and he realizes what, what Jesus said was right, he would deny him, uh, Peter breaks down and weeps. Your response in moments of failure is the turnkey to being used by God in the long haul. Uh, tonight is not about like, oh, are you like Peter? Have you done wrong? Join the club. How many of you have done wrong? Join the club. How many of you have failed? Join the club. How many of you could have stood up as a witness in the past six months and could have spoken about Jesus but cowered down or said, oh, maybe next time or the timing's not right? We all fail at moments, but it's Peter's response to his failure when he's exposed to it that sets him up to be used by God. Peter will be the one post the resurrection in Acts 2 when they receive the Spirit. Peter will be the first one to stand up and proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter will quote Psalm 110. The same thing that Jesus is quoting on trial that the Son of Man, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Peter will use that same verse and preach it with confidence. Peter's restored and he's a leader in the church because in his moment of weakness, he responds in the right way. 
What am I saying? In light of Jesus on trial, who's the judge who does what's right, in light of you on trial, just like Peter, when we fail, and we fail more often than we want to confess, it's our response to failure that sets us up for, for usefulness and fruitfulness as a follower of Jesus. If you've made a mistake, it's, it's the breakdown and weep. Maybe you're not the crying type, and it doesn't have to be taken literally, but how are you? How do you feel? How do you respond when you realize you've broken God's law, when you've made that mistake, when you've done that sin again? How do we respond? I think many times we just respond and justify. Well, God, I'm sorry, but you know, but, but how often do we feel the weight of our sinfulness? How often do we feel how it's an offense to the God who's done so much to save us? How often do we feel the shame and say, God, I need you? And so Peter's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And so Peter's restored and you can be restored. The, the story of the two trials is a story of grace. There's grace for you. There's grace for Peter. There's grace for the Sanhedrin. They're the ones putting Jesus on trial. And Jesus is going to say later on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus, who is the judge, doesn't even judge them. He offers and extends grace even to the people beating him and spitting on him. And that's the kind of Savior we follow. That's the kind of leader we have. And in light of that, we ought to feel that brokenness when we fail and experience the grace of God again. What am I saying? That God's grace is bigger and greater and more powerful than the mess that you are in. God's grace is bigger than my mess. And so tonight, if you feel more like Peter than like Jesus, join the club and allow the grace of God to restore you. There's grace for you. You buffed up. There's grace for you. Now, grace is never a license to sin. To receive God's grace and mercy and forgiveness isn't to say, oh, God was cool. So that means party Saturday night, repent on Sunday, and figure out where to party on Monday. That's not the point. Jesus is the judge. He knows the heart. And so if you're playing the religious game where I can do what I want, but then I can ask for God for forgiveness because he's got to have grace and he's all nice. He's like Santa Claus. He's going to take care of me. You've missed it entirely. He's a righteous judge. But the righteous judge knows what in our heart we feel sorrow for our sin. And he offers grace. So the story of the cross, the story of the trial, is a story of grace. And so tonight, do you need grace? Do you need the grace of God to cover your sin? Do you need the grace of God to forgive you from your failure? There is grace for you. And if I haven't said the word grace enough, I'm just going to say it again. Grace, 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 grace. God's grace is bigger than your problem and your mess. And so tonight, if you need that, receive it. 